one of the famous one of the famous phrases associated with evolution is nature red in tooth and claw, which I think is a Tennyson poem. Um, nature red in tooth and claw. This handout, which I generously decided not to give to you before tea, <laughs> what it shows. Uh, let me, let me anthropomorphise it intentionally. What it shows is a nice, gentle, large caterpillar going around its caterpillar business of munching on leaves. And I'm afraid what's happened is that a female parasitic wasp has laid her eggs inside the caterpillar and the eggs have now hatched and they have eaten some of the insides of the caterpillar and they are now getting to the point where they are about to abandon the caterpillar having eaten most of it and go off to form their own little pupae because they're much, much smaller as insects than the host caterpillar is. Darwin, in common with most people, was you know, pretty upset by this. I, I said he was a nice person, and he was. And he was a very good naturalist, so he knew this sort of thing happens quite a bit. Now, what I want to do for a bit of an academic argument to you, uh, and we're going to now have more that's to do with overt theology in the rest of the session, is try and... Uh, suggest that the argument this is all absolutely horrible and is a real problem for the existence of God try and suggest that argument may not be quite as convincing as some people assume it is so let me plod through a number of stages in the argument the first stage and of course none of this is, is certain but, but here's the argument the first stage is that it's very possible that caterpillars cannot suffer at all. By the way, nor can they enjoy evensong. You know, they, they just haven't got the brains for it. They do not have the capacity in their nervous system to realise that they're in a nice or a nasty state of affairs. So the argument is that to able to realise that one is enjoying something or not enjoying something or at the worst level suffering deeply requires a powerful nervous system. We're getting rather beyond the limits of what science is confident about precisely because suffering and equally experiencing great pleasures are the sort of thing we can only really be very confident for ourselves. So there is a sceptical philosophical argument which first-year undergraduates are often introduced to which suggests that none of us can be confident that anybody else, by which I mean any other human being, can suffer or experience pleasures. Going to slightly more realistic positions, many of you will know Descartes' famous position, 
the, not so much the cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am argument, but Descartes thought that only humans could suffer or feel pleasures. I myself would not go as far as that because I'm an evolutionary biologist and there are great similarities between our nervous systems and those, for example, of many other vertebrates, particularly mammals and birds. But I'm afraid Descartes thought that because it was only humans who could suffer or indeed feel pleasures, the practice of vivisection, so experimentation on live animals, was morally perfectly acceptable. And without wanting to get into sort of Brexit generalizations about France versus England, it was the case that these arguments of people like Descartes went down particularly badly in England and were one of the things that contributed towards the rise of various societies against animal cruelty and the first legislation in the world against animal cruelty. So that's one possibility. The caterpillar isn't suffering. Right, let me give you the second stage of the argument and then I'll be interested for any comments or responses either to the picture or anything I've said. The second stage of the argument is best introduced by talking about the very small number of people, thankfully only about a hundred or so in the world each at any one time, who are either incapable or virtually incapable of feeling pain. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of these people, or I've never seen a television programme, but I once read a book about them because there was a rather good book read, written by a doctor who worked with one such person. Now, it's, it's actually very unpleasant because these children, when they're young, they keep on doing things like um, falling into fires or breaking, breaking ankles and not realising it. And the interesting thing from an evolutionary biologist's point of view is that until recently, they nearly all died before they reached the age of about 20. In other words, from the point of view of natural selection, not being able to feel pain is a disaster. Now the next bit, scientifically, is, is very solid ground. Okay, very confident, unlike the stuff about, you know, can caterpillars suffer? I can't imagine you finding a decent academic biologist who would disagree with the following assertion, which is that the capacity to feel pain is an evolved product, not in this case, of the parasites, it's the caterpillar and its ancestors. And the argument will have gone something like this. Animals, not the bad example of me to use the caterpillar. Can I, can I retreat to just say, let's say something like dogs, right? Dogs feeling pain. The argument will have gone as follows. Those dogs which were less susceptible to pain than the typical dogs risked being more likely to cause serious damage to their legs, for example, when they tore a muscle or something like that. Those dogs much more sensitive than the typical dog to pain are also at a disadvantage 
because they spend too much of their time not hunting or whatever because of the pains they've got. In other words, there's an optimum amount of pain you want to feel as an individual, whether you're a dog or a human being, that both, as we're enables you to protect yourself from further damage, but equally doesn't paralyze you. There are also, very sadly, an extremely small number of human beings who do have, well, actually, if chronic pain is a problem, probably some of you've got it, there are various sorts of chronic pain, but the worst sorts are totally dehabilitating, of course, because one just can't concentrate on anything. So being susceptible to the right amount of pain is a typical, ordinary, evolutionary characteristic. Think about being susceptible to hunger. If you're not susceptible to hunger, one risks not eating enough. If you're too susceptible to hunger, one risks spending too much time trying to find food, one ends up being far too overweight or something like that. Hunger control mechanisms don't seem to have worked quite as well in evolution in the recent last few tens of thousands of years, for reasons we know very well, because go back a few ten thousands of years and food was pretty scarce, so it's difficult to eat too much. For most of us now, it's very easy to eat too much. But pain, as I say, is just like feeling hungry, feeling thirsty, it's an evolved attribute of humans. So, the, the evolutionary biology argument is, roughly speaking, you want to leave offspring, and want again is deliberately anthropomorphic. It's the way that all evolutionary biologists talk among themselves, but one can always translate it into a longer version. Those species where individuals within that species leave more copies of themselves, de facto, have more representatives in succeeding generations, etc. You probably know, many of you, what this is. Meerkat. Meerkats are particularly good because um, they look so cooperative. Now, uh, Kalahari Desert, Tim Clutton Rock, long-term study, 1993 onwards. They live in groups of about 4040. There's an alpha pair uh, that do most of the breeding. What I would like to try and convince you is that even in a, something like the meerkats, there's as much selfishness going on as cooperation in just the same way there is for all species. So the cooperative bits look great. You know, they stand, they look out, they're all very helpful to one another. The sentry ones give calls. If they see eagles, they all zoom down into burrows. And the same individual sentries are the first individuals to come out, which means it's a bit more risky. But please realize, these are the subordinates. It's a hierarchical society. The ones that got to the top of the hierarchy, okay, I'm teasing again, you know, the Trumps, they're fine. They're fine. They're the ones, I'm not quite sure I want to pursue this analogy too far, but they're the ones that leave all the offspring in the group. There's as much selfishness and cooperation, and it's exactly the same when we see, you know, nice groups of lions on television or anything. They're not alternatives. Being selfish, and by the way, I'm not talking about motivation now. There's nothing to do with motivation, which we can come on to. Leaving copies of yourself in the next generation can be done by being helpful to other individuals if either they help you back or they've got some of your own genetic material. Like, for example, they're your offspring. Rather, a lot of species are helpful 
to offspring, but it doesn't have to be offspring. It could be nieces or nephews. Now that's a short version, but to repeat, the behaviours that are cooperative, I'm very comfortable those indeed being cooperative behaviours, and you can call those altruistic behaviours if you want to, but for certainly all species except humans, biologists would almost without doubt argue very strongly these are evolved traits which have only evolved because the individuals following those behaviour traits are good at leaving copies of their genetic material in future generations. So one more extreme example, you know in all the sorts of um, worker wasps and worker bees, including honeybees and bumblebees and termites, there are large numbers of individuals that never reproduce. Um, now, they in a sense are the subordinates, they would quote rather be the queen or the king in the termites, but they're still getting something out of it because of course what they are doing, even though they don't have any offspring themselves, for example worker bees, um, they are helping the relative of theirs who is the queen, who is usually their mother, they're helping her produce the special offspring who will be the reproductive males and females in the next generation. So the analogy would be something like 14-year-old nieces and nephews doing babysitting and things like that. That's a very loose analogy because of course you get some money for it sometimes. You also learn a bit, you also learn a bit about what babies are like, which in human terms is a, is a very useful thing to do if you're 14 or 15 years old, because it might stop you from having them for a couple of years. <laughs> and mean that when you do have them, you actually know a little bit more about them. I'm, that's just me off the top of my head. I've never seen a proper study of the, the, you know, the consequences of babysitting. With that, as an evolution biologist, that would be my prediction. That would be my very strong prediction. I'd also predict, by the way, you'd be happy to accept lower rates of pay, therefore, for babysitting for relatives than you would for non-relatives. And you'd be willing to accept lower rates of pay for non-relative babysitting than you would for doing paper rounds. Because paper rounds, you're not really gaining many life skills, particularly, whereas babysitting you are. So there are two evolution hypotheses. Any comments or questions about the meerkats or any ideas thrown up from the meerkats? Yes. Now, the evidence that behaviours are genetic, which Darwin was very interested in, mainly comes again from artificial breeding of dogs and domestic animals. So, the person who started telling us about the Border Collie, uh, so Jenny to whom I married, she's never had a Border Collie, but she had a half Border Collie. I mean, most of you, I imagine, have had dogs. You know, behaviour is largely genetic in dogs. A, everybody knows that it's got dogs. Um, you know, you show, you show a Newfoundland puppy some water, it just jumps in it. They just do, and they're quite hard to get out. They love it. Um, you know, close friends who's got Newfoundlands and so on. Um, you, 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 you know, terriers for going down burrows. It, it's just obviously totally, not totally, that's the wrong word entirely, it's obviously got a genetic component. Now, slightly less excitingly, but importantly so, uh, you can now do the genetic linkages, so you can show 
the bits of genes that associate with particular behaviours. And it's true, the, we only know about the extreme examples, they're usually chromosome abnormalities, but there are certain chromosome abnormalities that are associated with excessive friendliness in people, which is, by the way, evolutionarily, not a good idea. It's not a good idea being too friendly. Even if you're not in big societies like ours, where it's disastrous, because you're much more likely, I'm afraid, to get abused as, as, a, as a teenager, but even in smaller societies, you want to be discriminating with your friendships in evolutionary terms. For those of you who've never read Théard de Chardin, he's absolutely wonderful. At one point, the Roman Catholic Church was extremely keen on him, but he was far too radical, so he got dumped, and his theology got rather ignored. But what he had was a vision from a Christological point of view, a Christ-centred Christian point of view of progress. So Théard de Chardin took completely seriously that whole New Testament argument that the entire creation has been subject to bondage. So it's difficult to be certain, but I think Théard de Chardin would say that the pain and suffering and natural evil that there is in the world is A, ultimately, the fault of humans, but more positively, will be redeemed. Now, his view of how it would be redeemed was, you may be better at saying it than I am, but was a gloriously complicated view, which was partly through a standard Christian understanding of the resurrection, so a new heaven and a new earth, but also was more than that. He saw human evolution, didn't he? as increasingly taking us all towards an omega point. This is not a good analogy, but for those of you who watch Star Trek, how many of you have or do watch Star Trek? Yeah, we're doing better, you see, than watching, reading Darwin or Richard Dawkins or um, uh, Stephen Hawking. One of the interesting things about Star Trek is that the people on... Um, the Federation starship see themselves as having developed more compared to people of the 21st century, 20th century. So do you remember that they're not anything like as materialistic? And there are no wars, of course. Uh, so that has the same very common notion of we ought as a species, we ought to be able to get our act together. Um, and just one more thing about progress, um, and it's not, this is not so much Théa de Chardin, but one of the more optimistic readings about modern medicine is that when it goes well, of course, it is capable of undoing a lot of what, if read literally, the fall suggests where the curse is placed on humankind. So you may remember that in the most straightforward reading of the Genesis scriptures, that before the fall, there was no death, there was no mortality, there was no pain in childbirth. And interestingly enough, you also remember that one of the curses put on humans is that for women, 
their desire will be for their husband and he will rule over you. So it's a very interesting reading suggesting that the right way to have human relationships was not intended to be one of women being subservient or less powerful than men. And everybody, by the way, was vegetarian, as you may remember, because meat-eating was only allowed later on. So both the Teo de Chardin model and, and the traditional reading of the Christian scriptures, I think, are a very interesting, optimistic notion of the possibility of progress. Stephen Jay Gould, phenomenal writer about evolution, talked about the fact that if you played the tape of life again, you would get a different result. So this is a sort of quite interesting existential idea. But, you know, if the asteroid hadn't hit, as I said earlier, we hadn't lost the dinosaurs, if all sorts of things hadn't happened, you know, for whatever reason we'd stayed in the trees, we wouldn't have ended up sitting around at five past four on a Saturday in St Paul's. And Simon Coy Morris said, well, actually... Okay, you know, you might not literally have guaranteed you're sitting around at five past four in St. Paul's, but evolution tends to come up with very common answers. The classic ones being the fact that, you know, dolphins look the same sort of shape as sharks. One's a mammal, one's a fish. They haven't had a common ancestor for, I'm not quite sure how long, but about 350 million years or so. But they're pretty similar. So that's the argument that says that there will always be certain directions of travel in evolution. So vision has evolved many times independently because being able to use the electromagnetic spectrum to then see is an incredible advantage. So that would be an optimistic reading about the present extinction rates, which would say that if all of humanity disappeared suddenly, like in some nuclear war or whatever, the rest of whether you want to say nature or creation, it might take it 30 or 40 million years, but it would get back pretty much to where it was, even though the actual species that had gone extinct because of us would be a bit different, but they'd evolved to fit the same niches. So, genuinely intrigued, anybody prepared to voice a suggestion as to why we find that beautiful. I'll try and niche and look for people who haven't contributed quite as much. You're okay. Yep, you. Good. Now there's two points there. So the first point was about a vibrancy, was the word used, and the way the colour strikes. But then, interestingly enough, the second point made was there's a symmetry. Now, can I just say a bit more about symmetry? The data, when you show people photographs of human faces, is there is a surprisingly, to most people, tight correlation between what's called bilateral symmetry, so that's the extent to which the left and the right-hand sides of the face are identical. There is a surprisingly tight and positive correlation between how symmetrical people's faces are and how beautiful, stroke handsome, other people rate those photographs. Now, can you, this is a question to you, and I've heard there is an answer that's been suggested, so it's a closed question, unless you can come up with a better answer, but can you suggest why people might find symmetrical faces more beautiful? 
Now, that was the point. Again, could you hear it? I assume you couldn't quite. Not everybody could. Some people, could you hear it there? Yeah. Right. So briefly, the idea that, well, maybe it's because imagine one was going to end up having children with that person. It might be then that if they are thought themselves to be more beautiful, the children might be more likely to be more beautiful. And therefore, if that's what the canon of beauty is, that means they're going to be more socially accepted, that means they're going to be more successful. Evolutionary psychologists totally agree with that form of argument. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, that argument is nothing about whether having a more symmetrical face is in some objective way better. It's all about what's sometimes called runaway processes of selection that once you start having preferences for anything much, it's like the argument about the peacock ta peacock's tail. Once female peahens start preferring to mate with peacocks that have large, shimmering, showy tails, that's what you're going to get. Because it's a huge advantage as a peahen to having sons who are more likely to have the showy tails, <coughs> quite apart from the fact that it may or may not be an advantage having daughters themselves. So, absolutely right. Good. Any other ideas or thoughts? Yes? This landscape is safe. This landscape is safe. Good. That's a really nice, more solid ground now. Exactly. There must be some sort of sensible preference. Presumably, some people find rocky cliff edges beautiful, but I would love to see some. That's a really nice idea. We could do some good tests on that, couldn't we? And th so there's a lot of great points there. I like the point beginning of spring, which, which for most peoples means more food, not as cold, so that would make total sense. And it is interesting about the absence, because most of us, I suspect, would agree with you. There has been a rather good classic study done with Chicago school children about 30 years ago, who often didn't like photographs which hadn't got any people or buildings in them. But it was a study of urban Chicago school children. And probably what's going on was just unfamiliar. And the unfamiliar is often a bit threatening. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Now, again, because as you gathered, part of me is evolution biologist, I like your point about the pale green. Now, as many of you will know, dark green in leaves is associated with more tannin production, which is a defense mechanism by the trees to reduce grazing. So it's a jolly good idea to prefer, as humans, delicate, light green, because eight times out of 10, it's gonna be more digestible. Now, some people find these sorts of evolutionary explanations deeply depressing. <laughs> Can I just say that? Uh, we're talking about beauty now, um, and we're going to go on to say a little bit explicitly about human belief systems. The way that I see it is that the evolutionary explanations for things are logically quite separate from the value of that thing itself. So um, I understand why we find symmetrical animals more attractive usually than very asymmetrical animals, but that doesn't mean it's good to dislike 
animals that are asymmetric, we can divorce as humans our <coughs> rationality from our evolved reasons quite often for doing things. In fact, I think I would argue that part of the thing about being a human is trying to use one's rationality. So we might know that rationally, you know, we know why logically we're more likely to favour relatives over non-relatives. But if we're on a jury or something like that, we should try and strip away those sorts of considerations. In fact, we wouldn't be allowed to be in a jury with a close relative being tried, I realise that. But, you know, a head teacher or something like that. Um, you can have objective notions of fairness, stripping away the reasons for why we tend to prefer some person to somebody else. Right, can I give the last handout now? So, as most of you know perfectly well, picture of Stonehenge. Um, there was an explosion roughly 10 to 5,000 years ago around the world of building of monuments with many, many functions, but undoubtedly one of the functions for many of the monuments was to do with what we would now call worship. So the question I wanted to ask you, and this is only a trigger, it's not, you need to ask it, answer it with reference to this question, is, um, as you may have gathered now, I have a completely conventional Christian faith, but I'm also interested as an evolution biologist in why do every society that we know have majority of people who have some sort of religious awareness, belief, organised faith system? Okay? Not everybody. Every society we know also seems to have some people who don't. But to an evolutionary biologist, the presumption is that during human evolution, so probably you know, the last couple of hundred thousand years or so, there must have been some advantages, some reasons for people having beliefs about religion. Can you suggest why people might have evolved, shown, developed religious faith? Good. So one possibility is about the benefits of extending the society beyond times of death and therefore people are more willing to die for it. The only problem with that is that very often ancestral religions, including indeed Judaism, don't have much of an argument about a life after death. Some do, but not all. So that may be part of the answer, but it's difficult to imagine it's the answer. So I'm very comfortable with the form of that argument, which is exactly the same as the argument about, roughly speaking, why have vision? Because vision gives you a more accurate map of the world. So I don't at all rule that out, but it's not the only possible answer. I think that's the interesting thing about it. Do many of you know, it's a very famous... Um, parable told by Kierkegaard in his, in his philosophical fragments about a king who wants to marry a young peasant woman but he knows that if he reveals himself to her as a king she's just put in an impossible position. How can she really decide if she loves him or not? So of course in the way that happens in fairy stories he hides himself as a king from her 
So, in just the same way, as you say, everything might be objective to the case, but we might have a God who hides God's self from us for a whole range of reasons, but it might still be, in the ordinary evolutionary argument, beneficial to have a faith. By the way, as you probably also know, but very briefly, people who have standard religious faith, for example, in the UK, tend to report slightly higher measures of happiness and tend to have slightly lower levels of physical bad health. Slightly in evolution is plenty. You know, um, so there might be, as you say, those objective benefits. <laughs>